Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Casey Long and we are with the Coffee and Quill podcast tonight. We got a few guests joining us. Um, of course, we have Matthew Salinas, E. Marie, yes. Rex, and Wyatt Sutherland. Hello. Um, Rex is one we've not had on the podcast yet. So Rex, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hello. I typically go by Rex in an online fashion, but uh, it is definitely not my real name. Um, I kind of help out a little bit more behind the scenes of the company. I don't like to be up front and get any attention. So I was asked to be on here and that's why I'm here. Otherwise, I'm usually more um, kind of helping out with planning and figuring out what we need to do next. If there's uh, any strategy that we need to take a look at. And I also kind of veto a lot of decisions that uh, <laughs> Casey tries to make so that he can focus on what's more important. Yeah. I, I tried to get you all sports cars and Rex was just like, nah, we're, we can't afford that. So <laughs> um, we got some interesting topics. We're going to touch base on tonight, guys. Um, First one's going to be interactive media versus passive media. So like games and interactive stuff versus books, movies, what have you. Um, the benefits of group writing, writer's block and how to work with it. And of course, find an inspiration because Lord knows sometimes we need it. So I guess I'm going to start it off with uh, you, Wyatt. What are your thoughts with interactive media passive media do they influence each other um is one better than the other what's your thoughts yeah so um interactive media is not a new thing per se uh i mean ancient greek plays would include the audience so to some degree um interactive media has been a part of literary canon for a long time. Um, the, the thing that we think of most of the time today with regards to interactive media is, of course, video games. Um, it's It includes the most agency on the side of the audience uh, with regards to um, how the narrative plays out. Uh, most of the time that agency is just expressed in um, the mechanics of the game. But, of course, with... Uh, the popularity of RPGs or at least games with RPG elements, then the audience has even more agency over um, maybe not like the narrative, but definitely how their character is expressed within the narrative. Um, and I think that they do uh, definitely influence each other in a lot of ways. I, I was um, taking a, um, intermediate fiction writing class and uh this was in college back in college and um one of the things that we talked about a lot was how um writers today tend to um write very visually and it can be a sort of uh it can be a sort of um how to say this like a difference in style. It comes out in the voice and the use of vocabulary, but um, a lot of writers, since because visual mediums are so 
prevalent in our culture today. Like the majority of art consumption uh, in our society today is visual. So um, move, specifically like movies, games, and, and shows, whether that's streaming or, or um, broadcast TV. Um, so people are all, we're already starting to see the ways in which people uh, write differently, having a cultural background in that's saturated in visual media. And then you have, um, you have the work of figuring out how is interactive media like video games and how popular video games are today going to affect writers, going to affect writers of passive media like books, um, and even kind of feeding back into, uh, back into movies where, um, I, this isn't something that I've necessarily heard, but it's an idea that I've kind of thought about, which is that like John Wick, uh, is the way that John Wick is filmed. It's cinematography and how it's like, it locks in on this character. Um, I'm not saying that the people who wrote and directed the John Wick movies are huge video game fans. I don't know, but that that's a very interactive way of watching a movie where you're kind of in the middle of the action rather than the action kind of um, being away from the, the audience. There's like typically in film, there's space between the audience and the characters, but with a movie like John Wick and the, the increasing prevalency of, you know, kind of quote unquote gun foo movies um, is in the, the, the joy of these movies is in how close and almost just like barely not interactive um, watching a movie like that is. So they definitely influence each other um, and how that's going to affect novel writing is yet to be seen, but it, it'll definitely uh, be an interesting zone of research for people to do later on. Hmm. Okay. Matthew, how's that make you feel? I feel that for the most part, I mean, I think that you can make the distinguish or distinction rather, sorry, between the two, but I feel that, you know, at least from a, an imaginative standpoint, there's no such thing entirely as not involved media in such a ways that, I mean, even when you're sitting there and you're reading a book, like obviously it's not the same as with the same amount of agency as let's say playing a video game or something but you're still taking yourself on a similar mental journey kind of, you know, going through the plot and the narrative and depending on your level of imagination, you know, you can either visualize yourself smack dab in the middle of it and engaging in the action, or you can kind of take more of like a backseat approach to it, you know, much similar mm -hmm. in my opinion to, you know, as if you were to be the first player in a game or if you were sitting on your couch next to your buddy, as I'm sure a lot of us have done, yeah. you know, watching them play the video game. You know, for me, uh, when it comes to like interactive media, passive, what have you, uh, whenever I sit down and read a good book, you know, I'm able to like envision like what does Middle Earth look like? You know, for example, I'm able to get my own image of that. And I've always appreciated that with books because if you find a good book and it's describing to you like what this place looks like, you're able to escape into this sort of imagination that your mind has created. 
And I find that with certain interactive media like video games or even passive media like movies, you don't necessarily get that. And to me, I think that's like the big difference with all that stuff. Because, you know, when I thought of the great eye from Lord of the Rings, I literally thought it was a human eyeball on fire, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I but, guess. But then you see how they did it in the Peter Jackson films, and it's it's evil, you know? But it's so much better. But, you know, so sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but you'll never be able to do better, in my opinion, than the imagination that a book brings. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about. Sorry, I'm kind of I had totally had something and I'll, uh, I'm blanking on it right now. It's all good. I was gonna oh, say. Oh, oh, oh go ahead, Matthew, if you want to. Oh, oh, I was just gonna say it makes me think of so one of my favorite authors is Neil Gaiman, and I was watching an interview one time, and they were asking him, you know, essentially his thoughts on whether or not interactive media or even you know more visually or orientated media like movies would eventually take over reading. And he said the one thing that reading has that's tried and true is at the end of the day, you have an unlimited special effects budget inside your head. And that, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can imagine and cast and create all these characters and landscapes and everything. And they can be as real to you as something that's, you know, on a movie strip. But at the same time, you know, you don't have to invest millions or billions of dollars to make it happen. You can just do it from the comfort of your own home or your couch or wherever you're reading. Right. And uh, what I was going to say earlier is that um, with regards to, uh, yeah, just like kind of like getting at that idea of visual effects and, and the way that world building is handled differently. Like, um, again, back in college, taking a screenwriting class, um, it's seriously different, like how you do world building and how you do that visualization, because um, and this kind of gets into the group writing versus uh, s uh, singular or or lonely. What's the word? <laughs> Solitary writing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when you distinguish th between those two, it's like there's a world of difference. In in a book, um, the writer, the passivity and activity are concepts that kind of feed into one another between the audience and the writer. The writer can have a more passive writing style towards things like world building and descriptions there. They leave a lot to the reader's imagination. Um, mm -hmm. And then some writers will have a style that's more descriptive and um, leans more on grammar and vocabulary to try to make those descriptions engaging and interesting for the reader to, to pick up on. And then you have that interplay between the author and the reader. Whereas in a visual medium, um, the in a visual medium, whether it's plays, whether it's shows, movies, um, or video games, the environmental storytelling uh, that's happening there on screen um, is an incredibly important aspect of screenwriting versus uh, novel writing or prose writing. 
So that's a really interesting thing to think about too, is, is, you know, what, what do we mean when we really say activity and interactivity? Cause in a film, you're putting a lot of onus on the audience in a lot of ways um, to try to pick up on thing, environmental storytelling. Um, for instance, like in a horror movie, you can have something happen in the background that foreshadows a, a scare that foreshadows a, a horror moment. Um, and you're relying on the audience to be engaged with the film enough to, to pick up on that hint. And, and, and that makes that hint worthwhile when you leave it. Um, but if, if you haven't done your part to make sure that the audience stays engaged, yeah, you, you see what I mean? Like interactivity and passivity, um, they, they, between, they feed into each other between creator and audience. And we all kind of art as a collective experience and, and, and an individual piece of art can be a collective experience rather, rather than viewed as a, as one reader reading a thing or one creator making a thing. One thing I wanted to kind of back up on it's, it's nowhere on our agenda to talk about tonight, but I just wanted to say it. So when you're talking about like how some author styles are more descriptive, some aren't, do you think there's a style that's too descriptive? No. So every, there's an audience for everything, you know? Yeah, there is. Um, The reason I bring it up. Descriptive badly. (laughs) Well, like as an author, you can do descriptive badly. Well, but if you're, if you're doing it well, I don't, I think that you can be as descriptive as you want to, as long as you're doing it you know, crap with, with a lot of passion for, with the craft. Right. So let me kind of explain. It, it was a new experience for me. You know, I've never seen anything quite like it, but I had picked up this book from the local library, um, my librarian. She's really cool. She, um, she gives me like a random book to read every month when I stop by there. And she gave me this book and I don't even have it with me, but the author style, you know, the story itself was a really short, simple story. It was about this guy who went to try to court this noble lady and to marry him. But it was like 180,000 words long <laughs> and it took place all in one night. And what made wow. it so long was this guy, this guy was just like, <clears throat> he flashed his emerald irises over at her. He saw the crimson roses in the edges of his eyes, the lush grass whose blades were fickle and green. The skies had 1,287 and a half stars. And, you know, it, it was just like so much of that that it took away from the story. Like 90% of it was not story. You know what I mean? It was just describing the scene and I'm not like calling it bad, but it is a very interesting writing style because I've never seen anything like that before. Well, that kind of makes me think of like one of my major critiques that I've had throughout the years of people that write like Charles Dickens 
it's like in a, for an example in a tale of two cities he's got like thousands of words dedicated to like upholstery and decor choices and the materials that tables and you know like tea sets and things are made out of and at first when i read that stuff in high school i was just like well this is just so superfluous and unnecessary like you know i get maybe you're really trying to describe the scene but then at least when i learned from an older age you know, looking back on it, that the reason that people in that time frame wrote like that was because most of their work was published as serializations. So therefore, they would get more money if they could stretch out a further story. Also compounded with the fact that they did a lot of writing with like fountain pen and stuff. And if you stop writing, it becomes more of a task to have to kind of like re up and get things situated to keep writing again. I was like, oh, you know, that makes sense. And it gives you a little bit more leeway and acceptance into it when I think there's things behind the scenes like that to consider. But then at the same time, too, then there are just some people that I feel like it's it's just too much. You know, like I don't, I don't need to know the arrangement of an empty table <laughs> or anything like that. Like I, I don't I don't need to know that I, I can form my own, you know decision and my own imaginative scenery of what's going on. I don't need it directly handed to me, <laughs> but I, again, kind of like Wyatt was saying, you know, there's an audience for everything. So, you know, that, that might very well be somebody else's, you know, grand magnum opus or their favorite story. Well, and Matthew. Uh, oh, sorry. You're fine. Wyatt. I was just going to say, Matthew, what is the table arrangement? <laughs> is like the reason the main character goes on this journey, but you don't find out about it until the end of the story. I, I would, <laughs> you know, at that point, I honestly, I guess I would have to. Sometimes just, you gotta write it out. Sometimes yeah. you gotta write it out. Cause like, you know, you read, uh, uh, pride and prejudice, you know what I mean? It's got moments like that where it's describing. And a lot of times like there, <sighs> books and and any lit any piece of literature is a creation of its time and that kind of sounds like a cliched phrase but when you truly understand that there is humor in books that we do not have the context to understand um so like you know in, in pride and prejudice you might see uh, a scene describing <laughs> I don't know if there is a scene in Pride and Prejudice like this, but um, if you if there's a scene in Pride and Pride and Prejudice that, or a book a Victorian book like that that ha describes a, uh, a you know an unset table, um, it's probably there to either ratchet up some kind of tension or to make a joke, and the the reasons that that is tense or the reasons that it is funny is lost on a modern audience because we don't have those sensibilities we don't have that cultural background and that's what makes reading older stories like uh so interesting and, and you know like i was uh rereading the odyssey uh recently and i was reading a foreword to it and they were talking about how the odyssey uh was constructed and whenever it was written down to feel old it has archaisms in the greek that make it sound 
that's supposed to make it sound older than it is like how we would add shall and short and shall not and we like we the thy and stuff like that like we would add archaisms to works to make them feel medieval um the writers of the odyssey uh, did the same thing where they used archaisms that w- they were aware of in their cultural context. And that's really uh, not something that you would pick up on if you're just reading, you know, a modern person reading a, a copy of the Odyssey in English. And uh, I wanted to bring up a good example of when no very little description goes bad too. Um, there's this book. I, uh, I, had to read a little bit of it for a class and it's called the sentence by Lewis Erdrich. And, um, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying I, that the author's bad. I'm not going to like dog the author or anything like that, but this book was very difficult to read. And, um, pretty much all we had to read was the first chapter and a half. Um, and all I got to read was the first chapter and a half anyways. And, um, that book, uh, if you ever read it, let me know how the first chapter goes for you, because I, I was so confused about (laughs) what all was happening. It's, it's like, we're initially, uh, dropped into this woman's life and she's a drug addict and everything is confusing, which that might've been done on purpose to kind of disorient the reader as much as the, this drug addicted character is disoriented. Um, at any rate, you know, as a, for whatever intention, the writing style was, in, was incredibly lacking in any sort of description. And for my part, at least I lost track of time in the book. I was like, when are we, where are we, what's happening by the end of the first chapter? Uh, you've gone from this lady hating or hating her best friend because she's annoying and she's a drug addict to she's not a drug addict anymore. It's 15 years later and she's just discovered a ghost in a library. And it's like, (laughs) what, what was this? How did any of this happen? So it's like little description or too much description. Um, they can both go wrong if you don't do them well, but they can both be awesome if you do them well as well. I mean, you imagine, like, you know, if, if Lovecraft, you know, went into, to describe Cthulhu in a, a oh, intricate detail, it, it wouldn't necessarily fit. That it. would it's not be uncanny. It, it is. Um, I got a question for Erica, actually. We're, we're going to kind of move, move up a little bit in our agenda tonight, guys. Erica. What's your thoughts on group writing? Like, is there more cons than pros? How do you feel about it? Um, in my experience, it feels like there's more cons or more pros than cons. Jesus. Uh, simply because in a group setting, I find it, uh, easier to get more writing, uh, done in a timely manner. And at an, it's easier as well because in a group setting you're all working on one thing in one world and you're all focusing on different pieces of that world so world building is a little bit more easy uh, is a little easier um uh communicating on the story path 
together makes having an actual uh, outline e- easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, being in a group setting, I, I have learned more about outlines and stuff. You know, when you and I collaborated on Neon and Asphalt, um, that was my first time ever co-authoring something with someone. And I think, you know, I learned a lot with that as well because there were a lot of things with my writing style that you brought up and you're like, Hey, you know, what about this? Right. And there were a lot of times where (laughs) we kind of butted heads on where the story should kind of go. But I think that was good because we were able to meld it into this story that kind of flows perfectly for both Antonio and Maria, the protagonist, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, with Neverborn that we're writing, I think, I think that has been a fun journey so far. Being able to do that vast amount of world building we've been doing with it so far. Um, of course, again, bumps in the road. We're not going to agree on everything, but because of that, we find these new avenues that we otherwise wouldn't have thought of, right? And on top of that, I feel like with Never Neverborn, because of our experiences uh, writing together with Neon and Asphalt, we took some of our experiences from our first co-authoring adventure, and yep. it has made this second journey a little bit easier, because we understand each other's writing style a little bit more. Oh, for sure. And um, I... To me, it's kind of akin to like text RP, you know, like Erica, Rex, you know, we all met and actually Wyatt, we all met on a Conan Exiles RP server, you know, that did text based RP. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I, I find like text RP is probably the biggest representation of group writing and what you can create with it. Um, Rex, if you don't mind me uh, getting you to pipe up a little bit here, um, you obviously have had a lot of experience with like the text RP side of things. Um, how do you feel about like group writing in that context? Do you feel like there's some things where um, that could obviously be better? Do you prefer solo writing? Like, what are your thoughts? Um, I guess I don't really view it as group writing um, in the, in that sense. It's kind of with, uh, text-based RP, every person is writing an individual character and they may be writing like minute aspects of the world, but the world typically is there um, for everyone else to interpret or um, live in as, as is. And I view group writing as a lot more um, you're collaborating together to build something out. You might also be reusing the same characters um and to me it's more like well i guess in a sense the group writing could be uh similar to playing dungeons and dragons or um 
using an already established IP where you already have a world to go to and to take steps through. Um, but with with the RP, it's a lot more of everyone is playing an, an individual character. There's some manipulation of the environment around them, but for the most part, that's not quite how it is. And so for me, it's a little different from group writing in that sense. Okay, I gotcha. That definitely makes sense. I guess I didn't really think of it from that standpoint. Um, here's a question for you guys. So let's say you guys, I will put you all in a hypothetical here. Um, you're writing with someone and they want to take complete reins of the story and where it goes. How do you feel about that? Well, it depends on the project and the agreed upon group dynamics before the project started. Okay. Um, so for in, like in this instance, uh, if that person was the main writer of the project and it was like a world that they'd created and uh, well, the rest of us were kind of co-authors and working we were writing different character arcs within the world that feed into the main narrative and stuff like that then yeah i mean like they would have kind of veto power over their they're kind of mm -hmm. operating as a director in that sense um uh or or creative director which is you know that's basically how writers rooms work um, you know, you have your director in there in the room and you have your writers and they're all around and they're coming up with ideas of how things can go. And the director's like, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. That's how it works. Um, so if there's an agreed, agreed upon dynamic there, that's that's part of this, you know, hypothetical, then that would be fine. Um, they, you know, if they got toxic with it, then then, you know, you address that. But um, if there is not necessarily that's that level of agreed upon like order of operations there and somebody's not we're all kind of equally in charge of the narrative then it becomes more difficult um it depends on you know it's a i it's a little bit more democratic in that sense i guess it's like we all kind of need to agree uh and and at the, no point is anyone really really able uh to to take over as as a leader of the story because it's like that's it's not that kind of story you know so gotcha. it, it really just depends on the attitude you know if the if this person is trying to like turn their character into the main character of the story and that's not the direction that the rest of the group wants to go then the rest of the group can just say no and at that point what are you going to do you're either going to work with the rest of the group or you're going to quit and you know boohoo <laughs> or you could tie the group up i'm kidding um that that is a good response um i worked on a project back when i was in college it was a uh it was a college project you know where the professor like teams you up with like three other people and you know, y'all work on something, right? And it was part of my English comp class. And 
it was supposed to be like, you know, 50-50 split. You know, everyone does their equal portions. There's no leader or anything like that. Well, we had this one guy <laughs> who stepped up and was like, nope, this is how we're going to do it. And you're going to do it this way. Well, needless to say, we didn't do it his way. <laughs> and uh, we ended up failing because his project was different than ours. But I, I've been in um, in group writing projects before I joined Coalescence. I was working on a sort of um, tabletop RPG project called Carnathia uh, with a couple of family members. And I mean, the family thing kind of adds a little bit of more complication on top of everything. Um, but it wasn't just family. We had some we had some close friends and, and stuff like that. And basically we were trying to do a dragon lance. We were trying to turn this kind of collective gaming experience that we had into a collective writing experience. And what I learned from that, um, uh, is that it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And, uh, that's why novel writing exists is for you to kind of find your own feet. And then you, a lot of people with insecure people will try to do that Casey where insecure people will try to take over a situation um, because they, if they're not in total control of the situation, then they, they will, they lose all sense of kind of equilibrium and that sends them sort of into a panic. And that's the, just the experience of insecurity. And part of insecurity is you, you lack practice, you lack perspective you like empathy. Um, and those are all things that like personally as writers, we should work on. Um, practice your craft by yourself in your own projects. Only when you can make your own projects match your vision, are you really ready to start stepping into groups? Because if you're not confident in your own craft, then you're just bringing your lack of confidence to a bunch of other people. And it becomes toxic and it becomes... Um, everybody starts fighting and the project never gets done. It never gets done. It never gets turned into anything substantial. Um, and that is by and large kind of my experience with group writing, um, beyond just one or two people. Mm -hmm. I think that's one, that's one kind of question that I had when we went into this topic too, is like, what do we consider a group? Because if you're talking about like most this is a thought that I've had in the last couple of weeks, but like most art forms are made by committee at this point in history, movies, shows, even music, um, you know, books to a certain degree. Um, may, you know, if you're writing like a, a novel tie into a movie or a video game that will most likely be written by committee, although less so than, purely visual mediums. Um, so there's so many different ways of perceiving group writing as in like, is it just one person, two people, four people, or a whole writer's room or a whole committee of, uh, beta of beta readers and beta, you know, like to what extent do you really draw the line on group? Because we mm -hmm. kind of have to talk about those situations differently. They're so different from each other. For sure. And 
I, I think in the context, like when I asked the question, you know, group writing as in like co-authoring or even in text-based RP, you know, Rex doesn't necessarily consider that, you know, group writing, quote unquote, but I think you're still collaborating to kind of meld out the story, right? Um, I do have a question for you all. I, I think this is a good segue point if you guys are fine with it. Oh, yeah. So one thing I want to do on the podcast moving forward is, you know, we like to talk about AI sometimes, you know, that's just part of it. I have asked chat GPT. You know, I told chat GPT, we are a publishing company who has a podcast and it has some questions for us. And I think every episode we could we could not the terminator asking this question oh yeah (laughs) skynet's here boys Uh, (laughs) we can't even come up with our own podcast material (laughs) so i asked it to um well we we can't hold up we can come up with our own podcast material i just think this is like (laughs) a good with the idea to ask it in the first place yeah that's the idea to ask skynet to make us material (laughs) exactly come on (laughs) well it's interesting to see how the ai views literature right and i think that's something we need to accept is the fact it's here is going to impact the industry. So why not get its thoughts on questions it may have about the industry or what have you, you know, God, I sound crazy talking like it's a sentient thing already, but that's at least a year away. So <laughs> I asked it to ask us a very simple question on literature. So it says, how does literature deal with paradoxes inherent to the human condition, such as the simultaneous desire for freedom and security, individuality and belonging, permanence and change? Does it resolve, intensify, or simply expose these paradoxes? And on top of that, given the power of literature to shape individual and collective consciousness, can it be seen as a form of reality itself, or is it always secondary to the real quote unquote world? Okay, so first off, that's how you know we're not going to die to the AI anytime soon because you said to ask a simple question. And <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's simple uh, to it, Wyatt. Very that is not it. <laughs> that is not simple. I think you missed the point. Um, also, I'm like, should we even answer? That's a very Skynet question. <laughs> that's a very skynet question that's like tell me how you respond to your own pitiful existence humans how human is human (laughs) okay okay tell me i I told it to give us a simpler answer and it said sure casey let me dumb myself down a bit okay (laughs) oh my god no so it says If literature can influence our reality, does this present an ethical responsibility for authors in their portrayal of characters, societies, and moral dilemmas? Okay. That's a better question. 
That's a question I feel like a human would ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would say uh, my personal opinion is that, yes, we should. We have a responsibility to not necessarily censor ourselves um, per se, but to respect the complexity of certain issues. I mean, one thing that got uh, so uh, you remember the ballad of the raven and the bear, yeah, Casey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our audience might remember it from back when we were still um, posting on the Patreon and stuff. Um, but uh, I I presented that to a class, and it was just the first chapter. So it was the fight between uh, Scorvin and uh, Jarl Asulfer. Um, yeah, there's going to be memes about Jarl Asshole who? Yeah, there's going to be memes <laughs> about that. Trust, it's okay. I'm cool with it. Good press. Um, but uh, one of the, one thing that got brought up um, was I had a, I had Asulfer say a line that essentially amounts to um, I'm not going to let you take us back to your kingdom. This is two rival kingdoms. I'm not going to let you take uh, us back to your kingdom so that you can rape rape us essentially it it's more complicated than that and some like medieval language and stuff but um that's essentially what she's saying and i was not insinuating that that would happen just that in this world it's a bronze age fantasy world kind of brutal um in this world rape is a thing that exists and this is a woman jarl who is um basically calling out like this. Oh, this is, I'm not going to let this happen. Um, and the, the Scorvin, the character, the kind of sort of secondary main character of the scene basically says, no, that's not going to happen. You're either going to die here in this duel, this honor duel, or, uh, you'll die in combat, but you're not going to be captured and, and, and soiled in any way. Well, in the class discussion over that piece, it became very, very centric about the idea of sexual assault in literature and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know, fit trigger warning at the beginning of the video. Um, but that it's something that I knew that I, that I knew and that I do. Um, I think there was some misunderstanding between myself and my classmates at, at the time. Cause some people thought that I was encouraging it and I wasn't. Um, but it is definitely a sensitive topic and you, you, we as writers have an ethical responsibility to recognize when we're broaching onto sensitive topics. I think so anyways. I think that at least from my writing standpoint, as far as morals and ethics go, sometimes I am definitely not the person to approach about it because for instance, like with what sleeps in Wollenlark, there's, there's some violence in there. And it wasn't until I had somebody just be like, you know, that scene where you cut the baby in half and drain their blood, it was kind of a bit much. And I just had to stand back a moment and be like, yeah, I mean, I guess to somebody Again, else. But to me, I was like, you know, yeah, this is great for the story. Again, trigger warning at the beginning of this uh, recording. Oh, yeah. But to be fair, sometimes as an author, if you're writing about some dark stuff, you got to go to a dark place. And when you come out of it, you're like, dang, 
I got the darkness in me. <laughs> like if yeah. you're writing, if you're writing about a sociopath or like sexual assault or baby killing, there's some dark stuff. And um, I think we as humans forget that a lot of us are capable of some dark stuff. And uh, luckily, a lot of us just choose to put it in our stories. Not saying that you know, we actually do it, side eyes. So, you know, I oh, think that's good. Go um, sorry, Wyatt. I always cut you off. I'm so sorry. You're good um, because um, I'm always trying to talk. That's why. Yeah, I got you. So <laughs> I think going back to Matthew's like baby bodily mutilation <laughs> in Wolvenlark, <laughs> um, I think that kind of adds to the type of horror that Matthew was trying to portray. And, you know, look at George R. R. Martin's work, you know, I don't need to tell you how many rape scenes are in it, but there's, there's quite a bit and there's a lot of grotesque sexual things in his work that does it really add to the story. Mm, could we have just said it happens rather than explain it? What, you know, what have you? Um, I think it boils down to what does the author's style dictate? You know, um, yeah, another, no, that's like, that's like for I'm, me, I felt a big part of why I even did that in the first place was subverting expectations because, you know, in traditional horror stories who are safe, you know, one of the main things is children. Well, what's like the purest, I guess what you would consider to be safest form of a child, a baby. So I was like, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I'm glad you did that because it definitely broke down that trope for sure. Um, there's a scene in one of the uh, stories I'm working on. It's going to be part of our Eldevar anthology when, when we get that ready. But there's a scene where this guy ends up being sexually assaulted and you don't see that in modern day literature because you know quote unquote that doesn't happen right and i'm sure there's going to be a lot of heads rolling with it you know because again you don't see it but i think it's imperative to the story to kind of show that Right, because it does end up making a lot of sense for why this character is the way that he is. So, uh, I don't know. I well, think as I think, long as... Mm-hmm. So, one thing that that I've been kind of thinking as we've been talking is that it's our responsibility as writers to know where the line is between necessary displays of violence in order to fit within the themes of the story and gratuity. Um this is especially true in films, not maybe not so much reading. Um, I mean, I guess you can kind of skip anything if you want to. Um, but, uh, 
just know the line between what's necessary for the story and gratuity. Oh. Uh, if it's gratuitous, then at that point, you're wasting page length. Anyways, um, you're wasting page space that you could be using for something um, just more in line with the story and more in line with what's going on. Um, and and so that's a that's a good point to have. And then another thing um, that I'm thinking is that sometimes bad guys have to be bad. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, bad guys in the real world are bad. Yeah. Well, they're real bad. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> they're, they're not going to... Stop romanticizing yeah. villains. Actually, make your villains villains. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah like, bad guys. And we, you should not like them. And that's why, you know, you brought up George R. R. Martin, and it's like, Ramsey Bolton is one of the most hated people in both film and uh, cinema or TV and books. Everybody hates Ramsey Bolton. And there's a reason why everybody hates Ramsey Bolton. Because he's an absolute scumbag. Um, and so sometimes bad people have to be bad. And that's that's part of the balance of being a writer. Is um, understanding where those boundaries are. And just letting people know. Also letting people know what they're getting into as well. Right. So like set mm-hmm. the expectations of the reader with the back of the blurred book. Don't make your book sound like a children's story and then have scenes of sexual violence in it. Like right. set the re- let the reader know that you will expect to see some dark things and then let the reader decide whether that's something that they want to engage with. And at that point, if you buy it and you read it or watch it or whatever, um, that's on you. <laughs> and it troubled you, that's on you. You were the one who made the decision to, to pick this piece of work up. Um, mm-hmm. But but at the same time, again, the line between necessary and gratuity, uh, it's our responsibility as readers to understand when we've spent too much page length on uh, just don't keep writing, right? Like just don't keep describing the action. The action happened. We get it. It's in our heads. Um, I don't know why it <laughs> a picture is worth a thousand words. If we just all we need to do is go watch book. Acura or something. Go watch porn. Oh, whoa! Okay, <laughs> you know. What? Um, <laughs> well, not to cut us too short here, but we're already fifty minutes in, guys. Yeah. Um, I th- I think we're at a good stopping point. I think the next topics the um the writer's block and find an inspiration i think that's going to be a good pickup point for our next episode so i don't know about you guys but if you guys are cool stopping here i I think we're good yeah yeah i'm I'm excited to continue talking about the writer's block and stuff too like you said i think that's gonna it's gonna be probably a great episode in and of itself oh yeah for sure i imagine chat gpt will have a lot of input with writers <laughs> is that going to be is that going to be our uh, is that going to be our ending segment now Sorry, like, yes. like every talk show has the ending the silly ending segment right yeah so in, instead of taking a q and a from the audience we just take a q and a from uh uh chat gpt skynet skynet write us a little outro diddy <laughs> You know, oh, it, it even says here, <clears throat> thank you for allowing me to be on your podcast. I really appreciate it. 
Okay. Well, guys, I didn't I'm going gonna... to see you being on the podcast chat GPT. <laughs> With that being said, if you're a reader, keep on reading. If you're a writer, keep on writing. And we'll catch you guys next time. See ya.